Well, good morning. My name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, first off, if you don't have a Bible with you or a Bible app, let me encourage you to just pop up real quick. We've got some extra Bibles in the back, so grab one of those as we look at God's Word. I think it's great to have a copy of it open right in front of you. Also, if you didn't get a bulletin, we've got a map actually on the back of the note sheet that we'll be referring to a couple times, so it's more than just a bulletin today, so you could grab one of those too from the ushers if you need to get up and get back there. Um, Brian is on his way back from some time with family over spring break, so I have the opportunity to open up God's Word with you, rather than try to step into this series that we've been going through in Luke, as Brian has been doing a great job of walking us through that book. thought it would be fun to do something a little bit different and take a look at an Old Testament book. I wanted an Old Testament book that we could wrap the whole thing up in one Sunday. So I said, okay, let's go with Obadiah. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. So we landed in Obadiah this morning. Uh, if you've never read Obadiah, I think you're probably in good company. If you can't find Obadiah in your Bible, you're also in very good company. So here's how you find Obadiah in your Bible. Right in the front, there's this page called the Table of Contents, okay? That lists all of them out. Obadiah is uh, toward the end of the Old Testament. It's like the 10th from last book in the Old Testament. That'll tell you exactly what page it's on. No shame. Flip to Obadiah that way, and we'll look at it together. As you're finding Obadiah, however you need to do so, uh, a little bit of background info. Obadiah is what we call a minor prophet. Not minor because it's not important, but because minor, it's a, called a minor prophet because it's not as long as the major prophets. When they decided to break scripture up and say, hey, okay, we're going to call this group of books this thing and this group of books that thing, uh, Obadiah is one of 12 minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, we know basically nothing about the author of Obadiah. All we know is that it's a prophet who received a message from God and who passed that along to God's people in Israel. There are some other people who are named Obadiah in the Old Testament, but it was a fairly common name. So to try to uh, identify specifically who in the rest of Scripture wrote the book of Obadiah is in the end a pretty fruitless exercise. So we don't know who wrote it, but we do know that these 21 verses were a part of God revealing himself to his people thousands of years ago. And we know that they are a part of his word to us today. So remembering that, let's read Obadiah, if you'd follow along with me as I read. This is the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what does a disaster awaits you? Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. 
but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Taman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountain will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down the fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head, just as you drank on my holy hill. So all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Shephard will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. I'm guessing that as I read that, some of you are thinking, and why again did you pick Obadiah, Brent? That may be an excellent question, but my hope is that as we look at Obadiah this morning, what seems distant and cloudy will become near to us and clear to us as we understand the ways that God's Word intersects with our lives even today. And I think that Obadiah does have a message for us today. Of course it does. It's God's Word to us. And I think part of the reason it has a message for us today is because it's answering questions that we have all asked since childhood. Quick show of hands, um, how many of you have heard within, oh, the last week, say, since it's been spring break, from the back seat, are we there yet? Okay, I don't have any takers on that one. Okay, we've got one taker. We've got a little bit of, just a little bit of honesty here this morning. Let's look for a little bit more honesty if we can find it. How many of you at some point in your lives have perhaps uh, shouted out that refrain from the back seat? Okay, there's the honesty we're looking for. A little bit more honesty. How many of us have asked the question, uh, what about him? He started it. What are you going to do about her? She's the one that got me in trouble. Absolutely, it was my older sister. That's true. But have we asked that question too? We have, haven't we? And we don't just ask those questions of our parents. Sometimes we ask those questions of God. 
Sometimes we look around and say, God, you've given us some promises that, that don't seem to be fully fulfilled yet. You've told us some things would happen that haven't come to pass. You've said that you would take care of everything in the end. You said that you would rid the world of injustice. You said that suffering and brokenness would be no more. And that's just not the case yet. God, are we there yet? When is it going to come? And we look around and we see people that don't love the Lord. We see people that disobey Him and put uh, their own desires at the head of everything they do. And they get ahead. And we see people who are following God and trying to obey Him with everything that they have. And uh, they're downtrodden. And they suffer. And we say, God, what about Him? When are you going to deal with her? When are you going to take care of that, God? We ask these questions of God all the time. And God answers these questions in the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is clear that God will act on behalf of his people, righting wrongs and establishing his kingdom. But before we dive into kind of dig that out of the book of Obadiah, I think we do well to do a little bit of background work to get our bearings both in history and in geography. So let's do a quick little history lesson. Quick disclaimer, these are the quick and easy versions of the dates, okay? So if you're looking for exact, then you're going to have to look somewhere else. This is quick and easy with the goal of being able to remember it, grab onto it, and put Obadiah in context. Uh, in the beginning, God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden. He puts them in perfection. And they sin, and instead of the perfection that God created for them to enjoy, they experience brokenness and suffering God doesn't abandon humanity, however. About 2000 BC, God says, hey, Abram, I'm going to make a people out of you. And uh, God keeps that promise to Abram to create a whole nation, a whole people for himself. Abram has a son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. For this book, it's important for us to recognize and remember that Edom and the Edomites are descendants of Esau, one of the children, one of the sons of Jacob. Uh, I'm sorry, one of the sons of Isaac. And that Israel are descendants of Jacob, Esau's brother, another one of Isaac's sons. So that's somewhere around 2000 B.C. About 500 years later, about 1500 B.C., you're familiar with the story of God through his servant Moses busting his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, and they wander around for a little while, and they, then they wind up in Israel in what's called the Promised Land, and about 1000 B.C. or so, uh, they have King David and King Solomon on the throne, uh, and that is the height of the kingdom of Israel. And that's when all of Israel, the 12 tribes, are united as one, about 1,000 B.C. About 50 years after that, about 950, the nation of Israel splits into two nations, the southern nation of Judah, the northern nation of Israel. And within the next 400 years from that, both of these nations are going to be attacked and are going to be ultimately defeated and taken away into exile. Uh, first, Israel, the northern nation, is defeated by Assyria in 722 B.C. And here, by the way, the dates get, as you can tell, a lot more exact. Uh, and then about 140 years later, Judah, the southern nation, is defeated by Babylon and taken into exile. About 45 years after that, uh, 
some of the exiles from Babylon return back to Judah, back to Jerusalem. That's in 538 BC. And then finally, uh, pertinent to the book of Obadiah, about 500 BC, about 40 years hence, uh, the nation of Edom is destroyed. So from that brief chronology, we can tell that the book of Obadiah slides in somewhere between about 586 B.C. and about 500 B.C. Because this is a book written to God's people after they had been destroyed, after they had experienced the Babylonians coming in and destroying Jerusalem, killing and slaughtering, leaving death and destruction in their wake, and taking many of the Israelites far away to Babylon. So that has happened But the destruction of Edom in 500 B.C. has not happened. So this book slides somewhere in that 85-year time period. And the cool thing about that is far from just being a, a nice little historical fact or a piece of information, is that how comforting is it to us to stop and remember that God speaks to his people when they have need of it. Imagine how dark the days were for Israel in those 85 years as they looked around at their torn down, burned out city, at homes that were empty that used to house their friends and their family members, as they remembered the horror of Babylon coming in and tearing down the walls. They looked around and they said, God, where are you? What are you doing? We need to hear from you. And into that, God speaks. God speaks into this dark time in the nation of Israel. He speaks into dark times in our lives. It's good to know where Obadiah fits in the history. It it helps, it matters. And not just where Obadiah fits in the historical record, but also what's going on geographically with Obadiah. There's a map, again, on the back of your note sheet. It's just, you know, some lines and dots. It's nothing fancy. It's not like a picture from the International Space Station or anything, but it's helpful nonetheless. Uh, It's helpful because it reminds us that this isn't just uh, something disconnected from space and time, but this is uh, something that happened in real places. So as you have need, as we're talking, go ahead and flip to the back of your note sheet. You can refer to that and see where things happened uh, in the book of Obadiah. Now that we've got some of our bearings, let's look a little bit more specifically at the book. The message that we have this morning can, I think, be divided into three sections. Each section describes a period of time, or as it's referred to in Obadiah, a day in which certain events have happened or will happen. There's a day of destruction for Edom, described in verses 2 through 9. The day of destruction is because of the action of Edom in the day of trouble for Judah, which is described in verses 11 through 14. And finally, Obadiah points to the day of the Lord's kingdom in verses 15 to 21. First, the day of destruction for Edom. When Obadiah writes this, this is all future tense. And it's referred to, in the, it's talked about basically in, the verse, in verses 2 through 9 of the book of Obadiah. One thing just to point out, even in the beginning of verse 2, when uh, it, this is God talking through his prophet, and he's talking essentially to the nation of Edom. So when it says, see, I will make you small among the nations, you will be utterly despised. The you there is the nation of Edom. It's the Edomites. 
So even though this is a message for Israel, uh, and Edom may never have even actually heard it or received it because it was for the benefit of Israel, for the benefit of God's people, it's directed to the Edomites. And God starts out describing their pride. He says in verse 3, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. The pride of Edom, I think, is seen in two things. First of all, in the strength that they had in their geographic positioning. Even where the nation of Edom is located is a hilly, rocky terrain that had many areas that could be easily defensible. And it's referred to here in verse 3. You, make your, uh, you live in the clefts of the rock. You make your home up high. Being up high is a strategically advantageous position. Uh, you think about yourself being able to hide away in a rock. That's a place where it would be difficult for people to get to you and attack you. That's one of the ways that Edom is prideful. And another way, I believe, is that they think they're smart. Uh, later on in verse, uh, in verse 8, it talks about the wise men of Edom and those of understanding in the mountains of Esau. So Edom's pride is seen in their strength and in physical realities, and it's seen in what they think uh, are their intellectual realities and their wisdom and their smarts. And they're so proud of this, they are willing to say at the end of verse 3, who can bring me down to the ground? Who can touch me? And God answers that rhetorical question with no equivocation. And in verse 4, he says, Look, though you soar like the eagle, though you make your nest from the stars, among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The picture here is God is saying, Look, even if you think you can get up in the sky, even if you can fly like an eagle, above something more defensible, something less accessible, even than the rocks and the hills that you call your home, even if you can get up that high, even if you could take a step higher and make your home, your nest, your dwelling among the stars, it doesn't matter how high up you think you are, Edom. I'm higher still. I will bring you down. And not only will I bring you down, but in verse 5 through 7, we've got, I'm sorry, 5 and 6, we've got this picture of a complete destruction. God contrasts the destruction that he will bring to Edom with the destruction that would come if it was simply a kind of a natural disaster that befell them. God is saying, look, even if thieves came in, there'd be something left behind. People wouldn't take everything. There, there, there would be a, a little bit left over. But that's not the case, Edom. This isn't just thieves. This isn't just a natural disaster. God is saying, I am going to destroy you, Edom. And even your hidden treasures, verse 6, even your hidden treasures will be pillaged. This is going to be a complete destruction. And not only is it complete, which destroys the pride that Edom would have in her physical strength, Verse 7, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. Not only is their strength defeated, but their intellect and their wisdom is shown to be useless as well. Obadiah makes it clear that God will act on behalf of those who are his, to right what is wrong and to bring about his kingdom. 
And the pride of Edom is no defense against that. As we consider that, I think there are two things that we can take to heart. First of all, when do we, like the Edomites, tend to trust in our own strength or our own wisdom? When do we allow our position or our wealth to cause us to say in our hearts, who can bring me down? Where have we grown proud? The second thing we can take to heart is just the reminder that we need not be surprised when those who oppose God's people and God's ways are successful. And the reminder that their success will only ever be temporary. I came across a quote this week that I think sums it up well. The gears of God's justice sometimes grind slowly. So slowly that we may not even notice them turning during the brief, our brief sojourn on earth. We even begin to wonder if they're really turning at all. I'm sure that many of the Israelites living between the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of Edom found themselves wondering, themselves wondering if the gears of God's justice were even turning at all or if somehow God's arm had been shortened and the gears had become stuck and there would be no justice, no righteousness worked for them. But that is not the case. You think about the people who lived, who were born, who lived, and who died in that 85-year period. And I think about them asking, how long, God? Are we there yet? I think about them saying, God, what are you going to do about Edom? What are you going to do about him over there? And the book of Obadiah was a reminder to them, and it's a reminder to us, that God will act on behalf of his people, righting wrongs and establishing his kingdom. And though it may take a lifetime or more, we need not doubt his promise. This brings us to verse 10 and the day of trouble for Judah. Verse 10 begins with the word because, and because there's a marker that there's a shift in the message, this is a shift away from the destruction promised for Edom, and a shift to the reason for that destruction. Got to say, okay, okay, I'm going to do all this in verses 2 through 9, and I'm doing that because of what he talks about in verse 10. It's also a shift away from the future tense of verses 2 through, I'm sorry, yes, away from the future tense of verses 2 through 9 to the past tense. God will bring the destruction on Edom because of what happened in the past, past tense, when Jerusalem was invaded and fell to the Babylonians. And when that happened, when Jerusalem was defeated, Edom watched, they mocked, and they participated. These three responses become progressive in the prophecy and in our own lives if we're not careful as well. First, in verse 11, there's this charge that Edom stood aloof. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth. Again, this is directed to Edom, so the you there is Edom. And then the his, while strangers carried off his wealth, that becomes uh, Jerusalem and Judah and, broadly speaking, God's people. So Edom was there when it happened. And I imagine him kind of standing back and saying, oh, yeah, okay, well, come on in, guys, and watching and maybe 
thinking in their hearts, hey, Edom, you had this coming. And I imagine perhaps they start to think, you know what, we didn't participate, we just watched. And sometimes we do the same in our own hearts, right? We say, look, I didn't do anything, I was, I was just there. Verse 10, or I'm sorry, verse 11 winds up with, and you were like one of them. God looks at the inaction, the aloofness of the Edomites, and he says that in that inaction, you were like those who were doing violence. Their inaction moves in verse 12 to gloating and rejoicing, and then in verse 13, participating in the calamity that befell their brothers. And not only do they, in verse 13, go ahead and loot Jerusalem and grab anything of value that's not nailed down and take it for themselves. But in verse 14, they move beyond pillaging to killing. And they place themselves at the highways of the byways and they look for fugitives from Israel. And when they see a fugitive from Israel, they would cut him down. Or they look for somebody who was a survivor who escaped the sword of the Babylonians. And instead of giving that person shelter and aid, they would capture them and turn them over to the Babylonians. In the day of trouble for Judah, Edom stood aloof and mocked and participated. Certainly, Edom's actions are pictures of injustice and of evil. And we're right to take comfort in the main message of Obadiah that those who would oppose God and his people will be held to account for their actions. But even as we take comfort, we also need to take heed. Even as we cheer the justice that God brings to those who would harm his people, we have to remember that Obadiah is a book written to God's people after they themselves were on the receiving end of God's justice. After they themselves were on the receiving end of God's discipline for their sin. So it doesn't make sense for us to stand back and say, yeah, God, get them. Without also stepping in front of the mirror and saying, okay, God, where am I them? I want to be clear here, for those of us who are in Christ, who are trusting Him for salvation, we need not fear His punishment or His wrath. Those are both totally absorbed by Christ once and for all. The debt that was paid at the cross and the victory that was won at the empty tomb are complete. However, for those of us who know and love the Lord, if we're not careful, we can take passages like this that speak of God's judgment on those who are acting as his enemies. And we can put them in a mental category over here that says, it doesn't apply to me, so I can ignore it. And when we do that, we are dangerously close to a spiritual pride that would trample underfoot the very blood of Christ that saves us. God takes our sin seriously just as he took the sin of Edom seriously, just as he took the sin of Israel seriously. The fact that our sin is covered by Christ doesn't give us license to neglect careful reflection of our lives, but rather it gives us a mandate to examine our lives in the light of God's holiness. So instead of identifying ourselves with the Israelites and just rejoicing in the judgment of God on his enemies... How can we learn as we remember that we are not totally unlike Edom? Where are we in danger 
of keeping quiet in the face of injustice? Where might we be as individuals or as a church cheering on those who are working contrary to God's purposes or even joining in their actions? Ask yourself, in what arenas of pain and suffering in the world have I been content to be silent? Certainly that silence can come for many reasons, not the least of which is simply the fact that we can't always speak up about everything all the time. There's too much pain, there's too much suffering and injustice. We don't have the capacity But where are we in danger of remaining silent? Not because we don't have the opportunity to speak, but because we're unwilling to speak. We've got to be willing to apply God's word to our life even when it gets uncomfortable. And I have seen us as Lakewood be willing to do so in the time that I've been here. So let's allow ourselves to be uncomfortable this morning, and let's ask ourselves, when am I silent instead of speaking? I think of three things that would drive our silence. Not an exhaustive list, but perhaps a helpful one. I believe that we are more likely to remain silent in the face of injustice when we're disconnected from those who would be suffering the injustice. It might be a disconnection of physical distance. It might be a dis- disconnection of social stat- uh, strata, of religion, of race, of politics, any number of things. But simply speaking, if somebody is different from us, their pain will in all likelihood matter less to us. I'm not saying that it's intentional. I'm not saying that it's malicious, but it happens. That's one of the benefits of going on a mission trip is that all of a sudden you see somebody different from yourself and that distance shrinks. That's one of the benefits of having real conversations with people that think differently than you is that you may be, uh, op- your eyes may be opened to suffering or injustice that others are experiencing and that distance shrinks. That's the benefit of a church. When she is at her best, the church of God is a place where... Uh, Rich and poor, young and old, gun owners and pacifists, vegans, carnivores, singles, married, PhDs, high school dropouts, Republicans, Democrats, people who wear a mega hat and people who don't, all come together under a common cause. The church should be a place where that distance is closed. And then we have the opportunity to speak when otherwise we may not have. We may be more likely to remain silent when there's a disconnect between us and those suffering injustice. Second of all, we are more likely to remain silent when speaking up would cost us something. If we look at a situation and we say, ooh, that's that's bad, Uh, but if I try to get in there, that's going to take some time. That's going to take some energy. That's going to take some money. You know what? I'm going to stay over here. I'm going to stay on the sidelines. I'm going to stay silent. It might also be that speaking up wouldn't cost us time or energy or money. Maybe speaking up would cost us relationship or status with people around us. 
Maybe we are surrounding ourselves with others who have been silent. So we too say, you know what? I don't want to be the squeaky wheel here, and I see that, and I think that's wrong, but I'm not going to say anything because I don't want my friends to kind of kick me out. We're more likely to remain silent when speaking up will cost us something. And we're more likely to be silent when we lack love. A big part of the reason that the Edomites stood aloof in verse 11 is because they were getting ready to celebrate the destruction of of Jerusalem in verse 12. And the reason they were celebrating is because they were getting ready to participate. And underneath all of that was a lack of love. As those who would claim the name of Christ, we don't have the option of not loving somebody. Yes, we have enemies. As individuals, as a church, as a nation, absolutely. But as soon as we say, hey, that person is an enemy, we are calling on to ourselves Christ's command to love our enemies. And we should be reminding ourselves of his consistent teaching and the example that he set of crying, Father, forgive them, even as his enemies were torturing and executing him. We have enemies. We must love them. To not love them pushes us towards silence when we should speak. For me, that's one of those things that I know is true. But what I like to do is I like to create a category of people that I, I give myself a pass from loving. And I say, you know what, I, I know that's what I'm called to do, but I'm going to put those people in this bucket over here and I'm going to excuse my lack of love for them. And that's wrong. Who do you put in that category? Who do you give yourself a pass for not loving? We're more likely to remain silent when we're at a distance, when speaking up will cost us something, and when we lack love. God save us from these things. Let's move on to verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. Something amazing and wonderful happens here. Obadiah begins to zoom out from this specific situation to show us that not only will God act on behalf of his people to right wrongs and establish his kingdom in this one instance 2,500 years ago, but that God will do so across time and across nations. Obadiah has been talking here about a day of judgment for the nation of Edom, but as it comes to verse 15, that judgment isn't just about Edom, it's about everybody. It's good news for us. It's good news and it's frightening news. It's good news because it's a reminder that those who would oppose God and who would oppose his people will not get away with it. And it may take 85 years, it may take 850 years, but the day of the Lord is near for all nations. And this day of the Lord uh, is a day of judgment. We see that in verse uh, 15. As you have done, it will be done to you. This judgment will be just. It will be right. God knows all. God sees all. God can perfectly measure his punishment. Uh, and in verse 16, we see that this punishment is complete. 
verse 16, we have the picture of drinking. And drinking is used in two different ways, mainly in the Old Testament. Uh, It's seen in celebration, and it's seen in judgment and punishment. And first in verse 16, it's drinking and celebration. It's a picture of the Edomites in Jerusalem toasting to the destruction of their enemies and toasting to the looting and the pillaging that they could do and drinking and celebration. And then it flips in verse 16, just as you drink on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink. And this isn't a picture of drinking anymore because they want to drink, but a picture of drinking because they are being forced to drink. Not drinking in celebration, but drinking the wrath and judgment of God that ultimately leads to their elimination. And they will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. And right on the heels of judgment comes verse 17. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. So there's good news in this reminder that God will bring judgment on those who oppose him. And there's good news too because when we look in the mirror, we all know that ultimately we at times oppose God. Scripture is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture is clear that there is no one righteous, no, not one. And all of us in our own sin are fully deserving of the wrath and the judgment that Edom received here at the end of Obadiah. And there is deliverance. For those who are in Christ, they need not concern themselves or fear the wrath and the judgment of God, but rather they can know that there is deliverance in Mount Zion. There is holiness there, full rightness with God, and there's restoration, the idea of Jacob possessing his inheritance, Jacob being in his rightful place restored. There's salvation, there's holiness, and there's restoration for those who are in Christ. And I love that this isn't ultimately just about Israel. It's not ultimately just about the people of God. But verses 19 through 21 make it clear that it's about God himself. You can take the map on the back of your notes and kind of track through what happens in verses 19 through 21. People of the Negev, uh, that's Israelites, are going to be expanding to the south and to the east and overtaking Edom. People from the foothills, that's the area between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea, kind of right in the middle there. They're going to be expanding westward and taking over uh, the area of the Philistines, which is Ashdod and Ashkelon and Gaza. Uh, People from Ephraim and Benjamin are going to be expanding up into Gilead. People uh, from Israel as a whole are going to be expanding as far north as Zarephath. And not only is this expansion of the people of God, but this is God bringing people back to himself. Uh, And Shepharad, the city that is mentioned here, is in modern-day Turkey. It's 600 miles away. God talks about, look, my people are going to be expanding, and my people are going to be brought back. And this isn't just for them. As As Obadiah wraps up at the end of verse 21, it is for God himself. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Not the kingdom will be Jacob's, not the kingdom will be Israel's, not God's people are the winners, but ultimately God himself is the winner. God himself is the one receiving the glory as he makes right what is wrong and as he establishes his kingdom. And this finally is the answer to our questions. Are we there yet? No. 
We're not there yet. We still wait for God to fully right all that is wrong, but he has given us promises and he has laid the groundwork for doing so. And God, what about them? God will deal with them. And God has provided for us to not be one of them, one of his enemies, because of what Christ did for us at the cross. God will act on behalf of his people to right wrongs, to establish his kingdom, and he's invited us to be a part of it.